Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. It's where we give you the Brooklyn Bay Area consensus about institutional investing that you desperately, desperately crave. We call it the Free Money Munchies. The Free Money Munchies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you're cr- you're craving a little free money. Insight. Yeah, exactly. Num, 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 yeah. Num. <laughs> Sorry, it's Friday. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah, exactly. Like the it, that must be just like a classic mood shift. Like people are encountering Friday us on a Tuesday when this is eventually released. What a trip for these people. It's, yeah, it's, you know, exactly. they're hearing like people that are just so ready to be done with everything, uh, <laughs> but their week just started. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because next yep. week is a holiday. Yep. Yeah, it's uh, Labor Day weekend. But yeah, like I mean, this is kind of a crazy episode. Like the, I mean, this is the Jobs episode, right? And like, much. I think uh, what's interesting about that, like you know, right, now, we just got some new jobs numbers, right? Um, and the unemployment rate, like the headline unemployment rate, is down to eight point four percent, which is not good. It was like three percent before the, you it's know, the, the global pandemic. Strong a number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're definitely better numbers out there. You know, it's, uh, <laughs> better numbers. Yeah. <laughs> and, you, know, and, uh, you go finish your thought. Oh yeah, and like, what's funny about that number is like, it doesn't. It's not the whole story, right? Oh, definitely. I mean, the funny thing in this process, uh, you know, we've had this mirage that I feel like has been built with the stock market, you know, and and this notion that like tech companies are killing it, but it's a it's a freaking mirage. And this week. Uh, some of that mirage seems to be, um, you know, being revealed as such. We've seen the markets kind of coming off, but for the most part, like you would never know in like reading the press about tech companies or you know that like people are suffering. Yeah, but it, yeah, but like we are, and we were talking about this before the show. Like we we're we're fucking suffering. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah, my like consulting business is down substantially. I mean, like, I've got really interesting stuff going on in a couple of projects, but I'm at like 25% of my capacity, um, you know, and that friggin' sucks. And, that, and by the way, that means you're not part of the data. Yeah, you're exactly. Not, you're not one of the stats, even though you're massively underemployed. Exactly, exactly. And that's like, you know, and that's like frustrating in a number of ways, right? Because it's like, you know, it makes it, you know, you have to pursue both consulting assignments and like full-time work simultaneously. You know, mm-hmm. it, it kind of makes you feel like the, you know, businesses get built, uh, jobs get gotten in this process that like, you know, basically it's, you know, everyone has their advice and then eventually you get lucky and the process ends. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. I feel like I always um, tell people that if they want a job, they need to like, keep being their job, you know, because being on the, yeah. the job train, like you're just moving from cars. But once you get off the job train, it's pretty hard. Yeah. And, and exactly. I raised this like as as my family, my wife will be like, what the hell are you doing talking about our shit? But she just she just quit her job this week. You oh, know, whoa. She, yeah, it's a big life change for my entire professional and adult life. Like my wife and I have been two working parents, but um, she's been like, at the same place for five years. And she was always thinking about a break. And I have to tell you, like the insanity of running the Zoom uh, schools and the like nonstop attention that our children need, yeah. it's not freaking easy, yeah. um, convinced her like to bite the bullet 
um, and, and like quit her job early. And so that like, she could help the kids. And like, I have to tell you, like as a family, that's kind of devastating because we've always been like, we're not a patriarch led family. Like, (laughs) you know, you know, like we want to be this like modern family. That's awesome. And like, you know, everybody's working and here we are, you know, Courtney's at home taking care of the kids and it's weird. It's like, we're not in the data either, but like, yeah, because the unemployment, I mean, unemployment famously, like, I mean, basically the way that 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 works is there's an estimation of like what constitutes the labor force, right? And like the, you know, there's basically the BLS kind of looks at it as this binary where you either are in or not in the labor force. And if you sort of um, have, you know, quit your job to provide childcare, that's not counted in statistics. If you've kind of like, if you're underemployed, that's not counted in the statistics. Um, And so there's this illusion of of widespread prosperity, which in a way creates this fundamentally American situation. Like, I think um, John Steinbeck had this great quote that all Americans are temporarily embarrassed millionaires, right? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Where like, at some point, uh, our ships are all going to come in, you know, and and everything is going to be fine. But there's this illusion of prosperity that's, that's so prevalent in our society. I mean, isn't that the American dream that like yeah. we all have a shot at being millionaires? It just yep. so happens it's the form, the only shot most of us have as as a lottery ticket at the liquor store. Yep. Hey, options uh, have value, Ashby. <laughs> <laughs> the, the other mirage, though, I have to say is like everybody's like, "Oh, tech companies are just killing it right now," and like as somebody who has like been building tech companies and working with tech companies, like. In no shape or f- way, shape or form would I say that like the companies that I've been building or working with are like way better off because of COVID. Like yeah. some have pivoted to like handle COVID, but like I don't buy this um, this like widespread belief that like tech companies have just are going to just kill it because everything has been made virtual. I think mm. we're all kind of hanging on to this this moment where like yeah, like maybe they're well positioned, but like how this plays out over the next two, three, four years. Um, I still think we have a lot of pain that's coming. And and I I say that from the experience of having to like pivot these companies out of industries and the inability to get on airplanes to sell SaaS consulting deals or, Mm. you know, the, the budgets drying up to buy data or, you know, it's like, really, I, it's just hard for me to believe that, tech has, has this amazing moment happening with, with what I'm seeing on the ground. Yeah, I, I think that there's like a tendency to be like, oh, that's bad news. But actually, paradoxically, it's good news. Like I, I saw a tweet the other day. That's that was true. Like, you know, like Freakonomics is, is single-handedly responsible for like every like 40 to 55-year-old person being like, ah, I see this data, but actually it's wrong. Uh, You're going to make me laugh so hard. <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. It's like, like right? Oh, but you're not interpreting it correctly. He's <laughs> <laughs> not about this interpretation. It's like Jesus Christ, really? Yeah, yeah. I do like Freakonomics, though, just to be clear. But it, it is, is funny how how like everybody is a data analyst now. You know? Yeah, exactly. It's like ah, you know, but you think that, but you would be wrong. But like you know, I think like this. Yeah. We we can make this like complicated at a high level, but you know, we've had listeners write in. You know, and obviously there's some open questions about like, how do you actually get a job at a pension fund? So I think yeah, let's get, some, let's get some answers for that, right? Yeah. You know, yes. just... well, well, first off, I mean, I did a whole um, paper, academic oh, yeah. paper. Oh, on yeah, this that's topic. right. 
uh, uh, I think the name of the paper was called uh, Attracting Talent to the Frontiers of Finance. Yeah. And, and originally I wrote the paper, it was written with um, Jagdeep Bashir, who's the chief investment officer at UC. And you might say to yourself, why the hell is it hard to recruit talent to Oakland, California? And it's not. His last job was in Edmonton, Alberta. The the noted financial powerhouse. Yeah. And we were like, how the hell do we get people to come to Edmonton, Alberta? Um, Which, by the way, for those of you out there don't know, I was born there, so I can talk shit about it. Uh, It is minus 50 in the winter. Um, So it, it... it's a tough place to recruit for it's it's not close enough to calgary to kind of benefit from like the rockies and all that stuff and so we built this whole framework for thinking about how pension funds can attract the right talent now i know our question here is like you know how do we as as people navigate the process to get jobs at pension funds but it's useful to think about how pension funds are also looking at 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 talent because ultimately they build their strategies around you know human resources on these kind of key things. Yeah. And I think it's a market with two sides, right? Uh, Like, like, absolutely. Yeah, exactly. Absolutely. And I think before I jump into our little framework, um, the, the key kind of things that we noted in our paper was that like, these are often public agencies. So there's tons of constraints and challenges. Many of the big pension plans are located in cities you've only read about. Like, you know, Juneau, Alaska is the home of the permanent fund or, you know, Everett, Washington, not Seattle, is where um, Washington State Investment Board is. You know, it's Sacramento where CalPERS is, not San Francisco. Yeah, Sacramento doesn't quite have the same vibe, you know. And so a lot of these places are in these kind of frontier cities, which makes them a little bit more difficult to recruit for. And then... The types of talent that these organizations are hiring for are changing. They need more investment capability instead of asset allocation allocation capability. Um, they're moving much more into alternative assets. So they're looking for people with private equity and hedge fund and venture capital and real estate. So that's a whole shifting paradigm of talent needs in places that you have never probably thought of going to work. And so we built this framework of how we design um, recruitment. And we called it the green, the gray, and the grounded. And the notion was um, pension funds are incredibly good at hiring people that are zero to five years out of college. It's at that point that they are green. And the salaries that you would earn at a public pension fund really aren't that different, not multiples different Mm. from what you would get at McKinsey or as an investment banker. Um, the gray are those people that have made all of their wealth that want to come back and, and kind of give back to their community. Um, and so the salary doesn't matter as much. And then the grounded are those people that have some connection to the, the sponsor. You know, if you're from California, maybe you want to go work for CalPERS to save your state. If you, you know, are an alum of Stanford, maybe you want to go work for Stanford Management Corporation. Mm-hmm. Um, so we called it the green, the gray, and the grounded. And then I had somebody this year tell me, you forgot one of the G's, gullible. <laughs> um, and I was like, oh, come on. Uh, but yeah, you know, this person was like, I, I love the green degree and the grounded, but you also need to include gullible in your recruitment strategy. So <laughs> um, the reason is we're starting to get it is the compensation is, is usually not sufficient to pull people out at mid-career. And yeah. so they need some other reason to get involved. Like, 
Um, they want to get experience or they want to give back or they want to live in a certain place where they can fly fish um, or, the, or they're gullible. I mean, you know, like those are all valid reasons. Those are all valid. And, and we've, you know, that's been used by a few plans that I've worked with. But I'm curious, you know, we wrote that paper in 2013. Yeah, um, it would be awesome to like get an update and and hear how pension funds are recruiting talent today. And at the very least, you know, this is the jobs episode. Maybe we'll help somebody get a job. Yeah, I mean, I think that so would be a lovely thing. We're calling somebody. We're calling Charles Scarina of Charles Scarina and Company. Yes, yes, we are. Yes, this Executive is Charles Scarina. Charles, you yes. are on with Ashby Monk. Sloan Ortel, free Hi. money podcast. We don't have free money for you, but we're hoping you have free advice for us. Oh, always free advice. Well, it costs two cents, you know. Um, we'll send. It's in the mail. It's um, in the mail. It's, uh, <laughs> well, look, we're your so thrilled to have you timely. on. Your, your topic is timely, by the way, because I am writing a news uh, piece as we speak about Kim Liu, who was just promoted. Yeah. CIO at Columbia. I've done uh, interviews with her in the past. She's terrific. And in in fact, I think I got the other uh, magazines to uh, take notice of her. Yeah, she's Uh, incredible. And she is, I think she's CEO of Columbia Management uh, Corporation now. Formerly at Carnegie, right? That's right. Yeah. So she's, um, she stepped up about three times in assets. I estimate two to three times in comp. Um, nice. And yeah. she deserves it. However, it is tough to, to the topic of, your, uh, of our discussion today. If you're not in an endowment, a foundation, or possibly a nonprofit hospital system, it, your chances are roughly one-third of moving into a mid or high level position. Mm. I, to uh, prep for this uh, topic, I went back and looked at uh, a lot of the CIO's backgrounds, you know, the resumes I have. Mm. Now, most of them started in mutual funds or on Wall Street or in banks as analysts. And then transferred into uh, usually an analyst position at an endowment or foundation or, or public pension. Mm. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the progression, once you get about to manager level, really about, I don't think quite two thirds. I, I, I broke it down. We broke it down a couple of years ago, about 65% of the, uh, the hires at uh, a manager level or above in an endowment or foundation came from other endowments and foundations. It's even worse. They didn't wow. come from hospital systems or charities or public. They came from other endowments and foundations. Wow. Like, wow. like, like Kim. Yeah. She came yeah. from, and by the way, I'm joking in my piece. Her office was 13 blocks away. <laughs> Tell me, New York isn't a small town. Wow. Um, so she's moving 13 blocks thir- to her yeah, new office. Eight, <laughs> eight, actually, less. Eight down and three over. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It do be uh, like that in New York City. And, 
five more billion. So um, same job. So look, Ch- Charles, let me jump in and and, and yep. just remind people that are listening. You're kind of a legend in the space because you write these awesome newsletters, which everybody should go to Charles Scarina and kind of um, log in to get these newsletters because I'd say it's probably once a month you kind of update the world on you know recruitment in endowment space in particular you seem very well kind of situated but your your world kind of goes beyond that into pension funds and all the asset owners and we've just been talking a little bit about like often how the pension funds think about recruiting talent but we want to switch it to you now and ask how do these organizations actually go about sourcing candidates and and what are the like what are the different sources they actually turn to when they're trying to get candidates in the door? Well, almost everyone now is bureaucratic enough so that they first post the job on their internal website. Okay. And and then, uh, for example, when I was doing some work for Michigan State, my old undergraduate school a couple of years ago, they have a procedure they must follow. You must post it internally, and then there's a uh, a list of you know, like indeed uh linkedin mm. um i forget there's a half a dozen sort of job sites that are really generational you know whereas i didn't pay much attention to it the uh the 30 and 40 year olds go to these sites first so at the the low to mid levels all the jobs are are posted and then picked up by these um, career mm. online and etc. Um, once you get to director level, though, they tend to want to uh, be a little quieter about the hiring, and fortunately, that's why uh, folks like me uh, still have a job. <laughs> Okay, so then, so so it's really just the kind of lower and mid level careers that you would kind of expect to see job postings on, you know, LinkedIn. Once you get to the higher stuff, you, you really got to just know the right people, is what I hear you saying. Because, and then your job, I guess, you're turning around and going out into the industry looking for the hidden jewels, the people that you know the, the asset owners didn't know about. Well, I have an advantage in that I've been doing the newsletter and before that articles on venture capital for the San Jose Merck for a long time. So I have uh, a a kind of a readership and the bounce that comes along with it. So when I actually write about something I'm working on, I'll get call inquiries from folks I didn't know existed in many times, mm-hmm. but you know, they, they, and, and not only that, when I send out my newsletter, again, if there's a job, they, they get picked up by that's these a, uh, sites. So that's a great competitive advantage. I mean, like the, I, you know, I, I'm curious though, like, you know, so we got the seniority kind of spectrum that we've talked about, right. Where, you know, at the lower level, um, indeed in the job sites, and then, you know, you better uh, subscribe to this green letter um, if you want to hear about the, you know, the more senior ones or the more nuanced ones. 
But I'm curious well, about actually the Scarina letter for what Scarina's working on. <laughs> <laughs> we don't we don't talk about what uh, uh, Russ Reynolds or <laughs> mm. or some of the others. Are. Right. However, uh, to your point, for instance, did you know? I, I mean, we knew that there was a vacancy at the Columbia Investment Management Company, but the mm. only reason I know I knew who was doing it. And um, and kind of the progression, because it wasn't posted, and they really kept it quiet. But I knew a few folks were who were involved, and um, even though I wasn't directly involved, which which broke my heart. But uh, mm. but, but it's a tragedy. It is a tragedy. Oh, it's a cold, cruel world. But yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but, but in general. You know, nobody knew. I had a lot of folks calling or sending me an email say, hey, what's going on with this Columbia search? Um, You know, again, I happened to know who was doing it. So, you know, I told a a few of them. But but it was very, very quiet. I wonder, like, you know, so there's there's sort of two questions here, right? Like there's there's the, um, you know, there's a question about the natural hiring appetite. About, yeah. of the, of these of these organizations right where you know if you're i mean you know famously investment banks sort of you know pick up young talent put them through two year programs burn them out and then it's sort of an up or out thing um you know but ho- hopefully and probably that's not happening at most of the pensions foundations and endowments um but i'm curious if you could go into each of these different organizations and talk a bit about the way that their natural appetites for talent might differ well, when I started my career on Wall Street, I started at Chemical Bank, which is now, which ate about 10 other banks, and be, and now they call themselves J.P. Morgan. But it was Chemical Bank and the Chemical Bank CEO. Mm-hmm. They had a year-long training program that we went through. It was really, really good. Most of those training programs at the banks are gone. They're too expensive. They don't do them anymore. Mm, That's right. Now, at endowments and foundations and pension funds, if you look at the the size of a staff compared to Silicon Valley (laughs) startups, they're tiny. Yeah. You know, the biggest endowment in employment still, I think, is Harvard with about 220 now. Or they've got some uh, quite a big back office staff, which NARV is trying to cut. But in re- and then Utimco, I think, is and then the biggest uh, biggest public pension plans, Calpers. What does Calpers have? 60 people. I mean, they're. I think it's ramped. I think it's ramped over the last few years. It's probably. I totally that, lost but. track, but but compared to the dynamics of bureaucracies, they are really small, and their training programs are non-existent, mm. basically, which is why, again, I have a job, because I every now and then I write, why didn't you prepare a number two? But mm. they don't. They don't. 
Uh, I I don't know. It, it, you know, you could argue that maybe bringing in fresh talent is is a good thing. I would certainly argue that that's the case in in Silicon Valley. You know, where where we uh, have done a lot of work over the years and, and lived. Um, but these staffs are tiny, mm. so so they when they need to fill a hole, they almost always have to go outside. Now, this is this is a great point to talk about this concept of pedigree, which um, you know I, I sort of ripped on in the last episode a little bit because th- there is a degree to which I mean, like pedigree, the concept, the word, the framing, you know, came about at around the same time as the historical concept of eugenics, right? The idea that that one's breeding would would lead to uh, an understanding of of one's behavior, um, and I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about about that. And how it sort of plays into uh, drives to boost diversity and kind of bring in talent from the outside. Well, I look at schools. So w- when we talk about pedigree as a uh, a search guy, I first think of w- what's your educational background because that doesn't that does make a difference. If you not so much in in the institutional investment world, although you do see uh, Chicago MBAs that w- where I went, you know, will be recruited into some of the hedge funds. Mm. Uh, but for instance, Harvard, which has a, a terrific old boys network, nevertheless, uh, in the investment world, I, I don't think it's a big draw. And and I see again as I looked at some of the resumes. Uh, the, the diversity of schools is terrific. Now, when it comes to race, that's a different deal. And that's what I've been writing about, really, when I took the call today uh, with you. It's if you're Caucasian, Asian, but mainly Caucasian, you're, you've got a far better chance of making CIO at an endowment or foundation, mm-hmm. period. If you're Asian, maybe that's you've got a decent chance. Now, I'm not talking about Wall Street right now. I'm not talking about the uh, the iBanks and the uh, sure. hedge funds. I'm, I'm really talking now about the nonprofit side, endowment foundations, pension funds. It it's still a pretty white world, and as you move up the ladder, it gets very white. Um, with I'd say Chinese a second, and what I'm mentioning in my news, if you are black, you have I have at the moment ten black CIOs that I've that I have from my database that I'm using for my article that's going to come out on Tuesday, 10. I have in my database of nonprofit CIOs about 550. Hmm. So that's less than wow. two, that's less than 2% of all the nonprofit CIOs are African American, men or yeah. women. Yeah. Yeah, uh, so it, from a pedigree standpoint, well, it depends on you know what what um, classifications we we are uh, using. Sure. 
women in general for the CIO position, about a third of the CIO uh, positions are women. It's getting better than it was 20 years ago uh, when I counted like 17% or something. Uh, about every mm. five five years, we do our own little census of of chief investment officers, and we kind of break it down by again by uh, school and uh, race and that stuff. It's interesting. Uh, oh, it's fascinating, Charles. I mean, I I think you're you're touching on something that we've we've really focused on in this podcast, which is like how how do we kind of break this institutional capital from from these um, these biases, you know, and, and obviously there are other biases, like we need hedge funds to meet our expected returns. You know, there, that's a bias. Uh, but then there's also like literal bias around race and gender. And it's one of the things that, you know, me as an academic at Stanford, I've worked on. Um, and, and Sloan and I really kind of reconnected around a project, um, which she was referenced in the paper that was published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences around where we identified racial bias in capital allocation. Yeah. And one, yeah. one of the things we really want to do is to help um, candidates for, you know, fund, fund um, you know, RFPs, but also job candidates to know, like, what are the things they should do to make sure that in this context where, like you say, there are networks and implicit biases, they're not overtly stated, but... In your experience, what are the things people should be doing to put their best foot forward? Not just from the, the bias perspective, but in general, what are the what are the traits of successful candidates in in getting hired into these funds? Well, well if we're talking about the um, the various racial biases, it's a vicious circle because it comes back to education. For, for example, sure. uh, a, a friend of mine was the star everything through high school. This kid is smart. He blew through Caltech <laughs> half asleep, and he's now uh, running a robotics company. And I talked to him, and I asked him about, who are the guys at Caltech? How did it break out in terms of race? Well, we got, we got a lot of Indians, and we got a lot of Chinese. Well, what'd you think of them? He said, you know, they were good, but they weren't great. They were good because they studied twice as long as the rest of us. He said, I still ate them for lunch. I mean, the, this guy's brilliant. You, you know, one of those one in a million. But he said, I was paying attention to it. Uh, as for women and uh, Afro-Americans, zilch. Why? Well, when they, it, it, the system stacked against them. You, you know, how did the Indians and Chinese get into Caltech? They study day and night. It's like the kids that do the spelling bees. That's mm -hmm. all they do to get into the 200 slots each year, Caltech. Uh, so that's just not set up for minority neighborhoods they don't have the parents that spend the are willing to spend the three hours at night so i think it starts 
you know, there's there's a whole bunch of things that we don't have control over. Right. Yeah. I mean, like this is you hear people talk about like systemic racism, right? Where these like you know interlocking systems um, that are effectively oppressive. Um, kind of conspire against people from certain neighborhoods or certain backgrounds, right? Like, um, you know, if you have a situation where, you know, you're a single family home and the parent is working, you know, two jobs and then and thus unable to invest in the, in the child's care or whatever, it's not exclusively a racialized dynamic, but it can be. Um, and then you, on top of that, have all these frictions in the way that people are assessed um, and related to inside of educational institutions. Um, I'm curious. It sounds like what you're saying is that the the, the pipeline of candidates um, is just you know th- that that have the pedigree dynamics that these that these foundations, endowments, pensions look for in the form of a good education and the relevant experience is just is just very small. Is that the right interpretation? I would say that's the right interpretation. And and I've talked to Kim Liu about this. For example, when Lyndon Johnson's Great Society build up steam. You either, the hard way to do it was to give kids the resources and, if necessary, the free education to get them into the best schools. The easy way to do it and the way they chose was to dumb down the requirements. For example, New York City had those, um, you know, the tech high schools. There's about, you know, the Bronx Tech or Bronx Sci or whatever. There's about five or six of those schools. And Kim went to, uh, I think, the Bronx. They were tough. You got into that school. uh, You were drilled for college. She said, so she got into college because... Bronx. Now, now she came from a poor background, and she had no favors done <laughs> on the way up the ladder. But she got into that tough school, and the teachers gave her a great high school start. But those schools are, you know, I mean, we could spend hours on what's happening in the, just the New York City school system, but they aren't what they were. Mm. So now you come out of those schools, and are you prepared to get into college? And and then when I interview, and I say, well, how did you get into finance? Most of the women who are chief investment officers got in because they had a role model who was already working at finance. Mm. I mean, you'll mm-hmm. see it with uh, with my interview with Kim. You saw it with, um, oh, the lady who was at Emory Cahill, Mary Cahill. I mean, all the interviews I did. How did you get into this? Well, my mother's best friend was in finance, and I thought it was so cool. A- Amy Fall at uh, Rockefeller, you know, the same thing. She, she had a, a mother's friend who you know, was on Wall Street, and she thought that was the coolest thing ever. But how many role models? So, you know, I'm talking about women right now because I'm doing the article. But, uh, I mean, we break it down. How many Afro-American role models are there on Wall Street? Mm, yeah. So, how are you going to get a taste? If you're a kid that had has the potential, you still don't have a role model. Yeah. 
Yeah. And it's, it's really amazing. Like, I, you know, it's funny you use the example of those schools. Um, my mom, uh, worked at, you know, was a bond trader at Solomon and Lehman Brothers. Oh, no kidding. And, and then she left that job and went to go teach AP economics at Stuyvesant High School in New York City, which mm-hmm. is one of those, those five magnet schools. Yeah. Yeah. And, and like, you know, it's, I mean, she's since passed away. Um, but when she did, so many of her former students now on Wall Street came to the funeral um, and talked like crazy about what it meant for them to see somebody, you know, who, you know, who, you know, was a little bit unconventional, who had done these things, who had put them on a path. Um, so definitely that's a super powerful thing. Um, I, wonder though, I wonder about a structural force though, like the, um, there's a, this, you know, a listener wrote in about this really kind of insane situation where, um, you know, out in Nebraska, they were doing a CIO search and it wound up actually leading to the names of all the finalists for the job being put in the public domain. And Do you I don't know who that was? Because I did the uh, University of Nebraska CIO search, but I don't recall. <laughs> I, no, seriously, I would have yeah. known, I think. So are you, was it the public pension or was it the uh, University of Nebraska? Do you remember? I have the PDF. I'll email it to you after this. Uh, Yeah, would would you? Because I have found sometimes when we're writing about the uh, outsourced chief investment officer, how how is the selection process? uh, We will discover online notes, but it's almost always an accident. You know, they'll just post it online so that some of the other board members can pick it up and then forget to take it off. Yeah. Or or forget that Google just scooped it up. Uh, But when I saw that, I thought, "Uh (laughs) 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 uh-oh. Well, the CIO is still there, Brian Neal. So uh, whatever happened, I guess it... I didn't hear about it, which uh, which is good. <laughs> but oh, isn't that yeah. awful? I mean, when you when you wrote that, I thought that's terrible. That's the Nebraska Investment Council, um, and the PDF. okay, that's the public pension fund, I think. So that now, wasn't you. No, that wasn't me. Thank <laughs> You're cleared. But, but it does show you why. Well, that is why. One of the reasons why I do not do searches for public pension systems, period. I will not. I get calls. And I, well, I don't get calls saying, Charles, we want you to do the search. Please send us your invoice. No. It usually says, we'd like you in our database. Now, what that really means is that we've already picked who we're going to use. But in order for me to justify picking this person, I have to have nine others that I can say I religiously went through and they just didn't meet our requirement. Well, I'm not going to feed into that. So, But then on top of that, I once, when one of the CIOs was at CalPERS that I knew well, he said, look, get into the database. I spent hours online, putting every last detail of my life. I can't imagine that a CIA or FBI job application would be any more detailed. And I thought, 
after listening to security experts at you know Citicorp or J.P. Morgan, you should never listen to those guys talk because we're we're screwed. I mean, the Chinese and Russians are ripping us off. But I thought after that, I thought I oh, and then uh, Calpers of course said. Well, thank you. You know, you're one of 50 and we'll get around to you, maybe, possibly. Mm -hmm. But I thought in the meantime, (laughs) in the meantime, I've put everything on a public database. (laughs) And, And as you see from your example... There's always somebody who leaves the back door open or even oh. the front door. Mm-hmm. Have you so heard about other have you have you heard about this happening with other positions or something similar to this where like uh, <laughs> not not with candidates for a senior position. I've I've gotten notes after the fact about discussions about candidates, but They've been um, the names have been out, uh, uh, crossed out. Mm. So I actually think, fortunately, that that was a most likely a mistake. Yeah. Well, those those candidates would have had jobs elsewhere, so it would have been pretty um, pretty non-standard to put names out for people that actually have current jobs. It's terrible, (laughs) disgusting. By the way. It could easily lead to a lawsuit. Yep. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Charles, we brought you on to help us understand how to navigate Calper's job market and by the sound <laughs> of things. Don't, don't, yeah, yeah. don't go into that <laughs> match. You're in the dark as much as we are. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's good to know that this is just complicated, right, at some level. Well, okay. So, for lower-level positions, CalPERS puts out the, um, you know, they'll post ads, for instance, and then they go through this elaborate process, and at the lower levels, they'll call some people in. I mean, it's pure state government bureaucracy. Yeah. At the higher level, now, yet again, they're going to do another search, and yet again, it will, although they've got 50 recruiters in the database, they already know who they're going to use. Uh, I mean, they may actually, it may be two or three firms, and they're now arguing at the board level whose firm gets to do the next search. But that's that's at CalPERS. Um, More realistically, the endowments, I mean, to get back to the core question Mm -hmm. in in this podcast, they silos tend to hire from the same silos. Mm. In invest in institutional investing, so you, I, I will see somebody come in. They'll start their career up the nonprofit la- ladder after uh, spending some time at Franklin Templeton or one of the Wall Street banks. They, they were just yeah, analysts, and then they it was almost random. When I asked them how'd you how'd you get into the University of Pennsylvania's investment? I'll say, you know, the job came up, I applied for it, and that was, you know, 15 years ago. Mm, But but once you're in, it's, it's, you tend to stay in. Right. I'm not to segue too much, but there's investors, Wall Street investors, they pick 
things. They pick in, they pick equities, they pick stocks, they pick private equity. But chief investment off nonprofits don't do direct investments. Most right. of them don't. They pick people. Yeah. And that's a very okay. different right. skill. They're listening to managers, and those managers pick the equities. And the, so, as you move up the ladder, the skill sets diverge more and more. Wall Street versus nonprofit CIO, and and that's why it's you don't see that many CIOs jump into Wall Street. Now, the last mm. CalPERS, um, I, I never can pronounce his name, the, the lawyer that left before Ming. Uh, Ted uh, Eliopoulos? Eliopoulos. Yeah, he was a little different. You know, he had a law background. He had a lot of Wall Street connections. He has, uh, but basically he was still brought in because of his Rolodex, his access. Mm. Right. To, yeah. Uh, uh, but in terms of of actually selecting, you know, should I should I buy Apple or should I buy a cold storage facility in Nebraska? I mean, that's not what he's doing. Yeah. And, and I think that tends to be why, as you move up the ladder, you see fewer and fewer candidates come from outside these silos. Right. Mm. Right. Well, Charles, look, I think we've taken more of your time than we said we would, and um, it's been. Well, I'm awesome here for you. Here. <laughs> I know. Look, you, it, it's it's. Um, it's been it's so awesome. great. What we learned is well, you need to go to a great school, get an entry level job, and then never leave. And then yep. one day you could be CIO of an endowment. Well, yep. One of my uh, my CIO uh, recruits, who's uh, still on the job. <laughs> He kids me. He said, how did you close the deal, Charles? You looked me in the eye and said, oh, I can't tell you who it is. Said, <laughs> this, this is the best job you're ever going to have. <laughs> and he said, you know, I thought about it. <laughs> and you laid it out for me. And I thought, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> and he's making job. really good money. <laughs> there you go. All right, Charles. Well, thanks. Thanks so you much. Bet. Have a great weekend. Thanks, you Charles. You Bye-bye. So I guess my randomness uh, construct from earlier <laughs> holds up pretty well. Look, I mean, the, the, the sad thing is I thought he was going to like talk about like exactly how you get in there. And he was, he himself is as frustrated with the process that CalPERS said in other <laughs> But I think what resonated for me and what he said, which I've found true, and I'm sure you have too, Sloan, is that it's a, it's a privileged network. And the network yep. starts, you know, you go to the right high school and you go to the right college and then you get the right finance job and that finance job gets you the entry level job. And it's all, it's all baked very early in your life. It's really yeah. hard to break in uh, in your forties, you know, or your late thirties. Like it's all done. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, it's funny, like, you know, and it's, it's not just the endowments, the foundations, the pensions, like, I, you know, I, I write this column for CityWire about diversity in like the registered investment advisor space, mm. which should be a lot more democratic. I mean, like, you know, it's a lot easier to start a registered investment advisor than it is to, you know, get a job at the Columbia University pension, right? You just yeah. sort of have to fill out the filing. But the diversity numbers are exactly the same. Like, wow. um, I, I quoted this person, Keith Beverly, who's one of like the few CFA C CFPs on earth who's black. 
um, in, in a column a couple uh, months ago. And he's like, literally 99% of people are black. And he, and he sent me an academic paper, <laughs> um, you know, basically, uh, sorry, 99% are white. Oh, uh, <laughs> hey, <what industry> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, yeah. Unlike the, unlike an institutional investing, a hundred percent of registered investment advisors are black. No, not true. Yeah. At all. The inverse. No, not true. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, we do. I did. I did like his comment about how we need more role models because you know a lot so of the true. work. A lot of the work I do with pension funds, where I go in and I like help them design some new thing. I do it because I'm like, look, you could be a role model. For others, because that's actually how you drive change in this industry. They all follow the leader, but somewhere you need somebody to lead. And and pensions struggle with leading. We've beaten this topic to death on this podcast in terms of innovation. But we need people to lead by like changing their hiring policies and, and yeah. really making um, a pledge towards a more diverse workforce. Because you know the the right proportion of you know, black men and women in in financial services should be fifteen percent, right? Yeah, something yeah, like but, that. It, if not higher, yeah. And it's yeah. like, a, and you know, I've seen firsthand the power of role models. Like, um, which is this is like I can't believe I'm about to say this, but like, you know, what, so when I came out as trans, like, I knew of two other people who were trans on Wall Street, right? Um, and they were both like fifty five year old folks who had run their own asset management firm and were like deca millionaires. Um, oh, you know, so like not the same degree of career risk. Right. Um, <laughs> and, and like, you know, I just, did, I didn't know anyone my same age or whatever. And now like three or four years later, I have this DM group on Twitter of like 10 other trans girls. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and like, I've, I, you know, I've heard from folks at my old employer, like somebody wrote me and it's like, Sloan, you're my role model. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, get a better role model. Uh, <laughs> like, like, I mean, like, that's explicitly no, but terrifying. No, but that's freaking terrifying. Like the, you know, I mean, like, I don't know anything. And like the, it, I think it speaks to just the paucity of, um, of models for folks who fall a little bit outside of kind of the normal way of, of, of being and, you know, and performing professionalism. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wish there were, you know, more people like you, Sloan. I think you're, you know, you're an incredible role model. Yeah, look at us. So here we are. We're putting our, uh, you know, we're putting ourselves out there and, and yeah. talking about all these things on a weekly basis. And, and, you know, I've, I've learned a ton from you. And so I think we, this is, I'm not surprised people are calling you a role model, Sloan. I know you don't like the compliments. <laughs> Thank you. It's very nice. I learned a lot from you too. Um, but with that said, it's time to change the subject. Or wait, it's time for do it. <laughs> it's time for Dear Ashby. This is the segment of the show where we take listener questions, include and you know, opportune time to mention that a listener question sparked the idea for this episode. So, um, if you are sitting there and you're wondering about something related to the world of pensions, sovereign funds, endowments. Um, and so forth, um, or even queer stuff, whatever, really. Um, write us at freemoneypod at gmail.com, freemoneypod at gmail.com, or, you know, while you're at it, maybe leave a review in the iTunes store or your podcast store of choice. That's a nice thing to do. Whoever leaves a, a review that says free money munchies yep. gets a free item from the atelier. That's so true. Yeah, yeah. Actually, um, yeah. If you, you if you leave a review that mentions Ephanon, uh, also, um, <laughs> and then true. Email, Ephanon, email us about it. <laughs> yeah, then I will literally buy something from the Free Money Atelier <laughs> and mail it to you. 
Yeah, you'll get a free pair of free money underwear. <laughs> yeah, it's up to me to choose what you get. Right? Yeah, exactly. So. Yeah, the I mean, the underwear are super, shockingly unpopular. Um, it's I think we're in the it, we're in triple digits in terms of the people who've bought on the atelier. In terms of the the revenue numbers or the number of people, the number of people, really, like three. 3.00? <laughs> yeah, that's my favorite flight of the Concord joke, where he's like talking about his number of dates he's had, we'll say. Uh, and, and, and he's like triple digits. And then uh, Brett is like, three isn't triple digits. <laughs> anyway, free money, free money tip. Watch flight of the Concord. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. Yeah, starts with F, very aligned with F and on. We um, have to continue to say F things. Um, so here's the first question here's the first question Um, you two talk about the rise of ESG investing like it's a good thing Um, and and I'm sure that's overwhelmingly true but are there any dystopian consequences of ESG's growing popularity this is after all 2020 for sure I love this question are you kidding me ESG has the potential to become a world of bullshit and disinformation if we don't yep. do it right. Yep. And and so like in the core, like I'd love to think that ESG leads to like deeper understanding, but information overload means information has no value. We have less knowledge, less understanding. Companies that are good get lost. Companies that are bad bullshit their way to looking good. And so yeah, like we need we need ESG to come with more standards. That's what the Sustainability Accounting Standards Board has started yep. to do with this notion of materiality. But there's a long ways to go. Um, if, you know, somebody told me there's something like seventy trillion dollars. Oh, it was Gene Rogers on our show. Yeah, it was Gene. Seventy trillion dollars of sustainable capital out there. Like, what the frick? What? Yeah. Why aren't all my problems solved? Why? Yeah. Because it's baloney. You know, and so that's the dystopian future we need to avoid where like all information becomes meaningless because ESG becomes like Facebook. Oh, man, that's so that's so like Huxley. And, you know, I mean, like there's this like dystopia, there's like the Orwell versus Huxley, you know, kind of (laughs) kind of continuum where like, on the one hand, you have like the, you know, the apparatchiks controlling society explicitly, um, subject to their whim. And on the other hand, in the Huxley zone, you just are, are so um, inundated with information that you can't actually make sense of anything. And it sounds like yeah. we're, we're very much in the latter zone. We uh, could be. We could yeah. be if we don't start to bring um, rules into this space. Now, the definition of alternative data for which ESG fits is data not conventionally used in decision-making. So it's hard to bring conventions around the <laughs> unconventional. But... Yep. We need to. We need some way of vetting, you know, and understanding the value of this data, where we can use it, and and so that is the fear um, yeah. that. Um, and I appreciate all your literary references that I don't quite understand, but uh, <laughs> you, you know, it's it's really important if you're gonna if you're gonna think about finance, it's really important to major in English literature. Uh, it is, <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's an important, yeah, important like, thing. I mean, come on, the world needs people who can re- read medieval English. Um, the uh, all right. So next question is the uh, the active ownership theme is really interesting. How long has it, it been going on? Um, <laughs> like, what is the first action by a long term investor you're aware of that you would classify as active ownership? 
<laughs> so funny. I, I don't think I would call active ownership interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's like, how do you vote? How did you vote your proxy this quarter? <laughs> um, uh, look, yes. I think active, owner, active ownership is important. <laughs> Um, and it has the potential to be really interesting. I think for too long, it's been kind of like the, um, the less focused upon component of what all of these big pension funds and sovereign funds um, have as part of their you know, job. Yep. Uh, you know, we think of investing as like picking things to buy. But investing is also managing the asset, which is about you know looking in and actively engaging with the ownership of of the companies to change the governance. That's what active ownership refers to, like an yeah. investor engaging um, and and trying to influence the governance of companies, projects, etc., um, in order to add value. And for a long time, people thought that pension funds should just stay out of it. You know, like they're government entities and what are they going to do to add value? And so all of these proxy voting industries emerged. And I have to say, it was like, you know, we, we added more layers of intermediaries and frankly, the rise of passive funds and, and um, you know, zero fee products has led, you know, a lot of funds to generate revenue through securities lending. And when mm. you lend your securities, you don't get to vote the proxies. Yep. You know, th- these are all the things that are, and, and just, uh, just there. as a 101 thing for folks, like, yeah. you know, large, large companies are, exist in this form of like shareholder democracy, right? Where a lot right. of the time, you know, like every year you'll get uh, what's called a proxy statement where they, you know, usually they'll have the most important thing that always gets written about in the news is uh, something about manager pay, um, right. you know, where you have, you approve the CEO pay package and stuff like that. But they'll also sometimes have proxies in relation to mergers, acquisitions, st- changes of strategies, spinoffs, and, and interesting stuff like that. Um, so that's shareholder democracy mm-hmm. in which the tourists have yep. the same vote as the citizens. Indeedo. Yes, indeedo. Um, that's yeah. the problem with <laughs> our model of um, capitalism is the way that we've designed this with our public markets is you can own the stock for one minute and have the same voice. As yep. somebody who's owned the stock for you know a one decade, um, and and active ownership, the movement is about trying to empower those long holders of assets, the asset owners, to actually voice um, you know their desires in this process. And the first step, which I think was part of the user question, is generally to participate in you know the annual meeting and vote your proxy on the various proxy resolutions that a company puts forward which often includes composition of the board mm-hmm. um sometimes it includes like c-suite uh, pay comp- pay and compensation packages and things like that but it also is like you know related to climate change and yep. things like, I, I remember like i think exxon was told to Dude, I forget what it was. But, but yeah, yeah, like they, they were, they were. The shareholders wanted to, like a shareholder. This was a hero thing. Um, yeah. Uh, the 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 shareholders, um, large group led by um, the Japanese uh, large Japanese pension, um, took Exxon aside and were like, "Hey, we want better disclosure around climate risk." And Exxon right. applied for an SEC safe harbor protection to keep them from making that disclosure. 
which is still like the most punk thing ever. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. What a bunch of wimps. <laughs> exactly. Uh, all, right. all right. Last one. Last question. Uh, you know, following on the dystopia theme, um, the giant NASDAQ whale, quote unquote, that has been hoovering up equity options with a highly unusual appetite was revealed to be, drumroll please, SoftBank. Uh, of all things, um, doesn't this prove that asset managers should be more closely regulated? Um, of course, of course, <laughs> SoftBank, right? Like, yeah, like <laughs> you know, the the entity blamed for all of the insane valuations in, in Silicon Valley is now yeah. at fault for the ridiculous run up in tech equities over the last three months and yeah you know the complete disconnect between the real economy and the financial economy of course it's SoftBank, not yep. the fed yep you know um i don't have like a great answer for this one um, other than yeah like it's revealed they i think there was 50 billion and in, in options yeah, 50 billion in notional value of options yeah i mean like, but like <laughs> is that do you know was it calls or puts? Like I don't. Even uh, it was calls. Uh, you know, right. buying out of the money calls, and like the notional value is the you know the strike you know kind of. Uh, it's not the market value that they were. So it's right. not like it's not like they're buying fifty billion dollars worth of. It, it might have been like two or two or three billion. Some right. Some relatively large. It's a number. big bet, though. It's a big bet, and it moves the market right. Like because yeah. options markets are pretty thin, especially when yeah. they're out of the money. Um, yeah. You know, so like yeah, it was. <sighs> I guess the recommendation, though, has to be if anyone hasn't read SoftBank's earnings presentations and the and the powerpoints that go alongside it, um, you're missing You'll out. See the, the <laughs> level of detailed analysis that goes into these uh, bets includes such things as drawings of unicorns. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and and like <laughs> our strategy is be number one at everything. <laughs> <laughs> Well, guess what? You're the number one buyer of out of the money calls. Yeah, exactly. You know, I guess it proves like if you know, maybe we'll we'll you know we'll roll out the free money vision fund. Uh, you know, after we do our spec. Yeah, after we do the spec, you know, we'll be like, all right, so you know, sure, we raised you know a five hundred million dollars spec, but what we really want to do is raise a five hundred billion dollar free money vision fund where we will be the yep. best at everything. Yeah, that's our number one goal. That's the how we're raising the money. Number one. <laughs> <laughs> it's to be best. We're going to be number one. Exactly. We got it. Um, all right. Which, yeah. Thank you all so much for listening. That about does it for this week. But we love, we love you. Oh, yeah, we do. Bye. Bye.